Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Politics with me, Amy Walter, on The Takeaway. This week, top U.S. and Chinese officials met again for another round of trade talks aimed at ending the trade war. Now, if you pay attention to U.S.-China relations, you know the two countries have not seen eye-to-eye on trade for a long time. I was in China recently, and observing the current conflict from there helped me to understand why this issue is so fraught. It has to do with history, a history we rarely talk about in the U.S. I spoke to Jiayang Fan, a staff writer at The New Yorker. For much of its existence, China has been accustomed to being at the center of the world. China's name for itself is the Middle Kingdom. It's never doubted its superiority in a way, its importance to the world. That changed in the 1800s when the British, perceived in China as the West, arrived on the scene. The British quickly realized that they wanted more from China, tea, silk, things like that, than China wanted from the British, what we would now call a trade imbalance. So to solve it, the British began to sell the Chinese opium, a highly addictive substance. The Chinese government was furious about this, and the opium wars broke out. The British had just undergone the Industrial Revolution, so they were more technologically advanced than the Chinese. The Chinese lost the war, and by extension, this early trade battle with the West went really bad. Since then, China has really come to see itself as enfeebled, vulnerable. The sick man of Asia is a term that's popular in China. So fast forward to the present moment, China is a rising superpower, but you can imagine how it has still carried some of its grievances to the present century, and that very much affects its relationship with the United States, the reigning superpower, and how it wants to conduct itself with its rival. After the opium wars for about 200 years, things did not go China's way. And in the eyes of some in China, this was just not fair. China has been particularly embittered in a way by the fact that the West has grown steadily richer. It's important to differentiate just the Chinese people from the Chinese government. China, led by its government, has felt that the inequality between the West and China, it leads to this need to play a game of catch-up. How do we become as rich, powerful, technologically advanced as the U.S. as fast as possible? But in trying to play catch-up, has China gone too far? Just two days before the trade talks began this week, the U.S. Department of Justice unveiled criminal charges against the Chinese telecommunications company Huawei. They accused the company of stealing trade secrets, committing wire fraud, breaking confidentiality agreements, and violating sanctions against Iran. Jiayang Fan says that the U.S. and China view this case very differently. The U.S. is saying we're not politicizing the Huawei case. You've broken the law here, and we are objectively just laying down international standards. And China hits back and says, well, these standards were established at a time when you were at the apex, when you were the strongest power there was. And of course, you're going to lean on standards that favor you. So the laws at this point, I think, almost become a little bit 
irrelevant to the discussion. Not, of course, to the case as it's you know as it's unfolding in court. But when we talk about you know this unraveling chain of suspicion between China and the U.S. and the deepening distrust between the the two countries, I don't think that focusing on the laws will necessarily solve the problem. Reaching an agreement on the trade war might be less about coming up with new rules and regulations and more about coming to some sort of mutual understanding. A big moment in U.S.-China relations was, of course, the election of Donald Trump. Jai Young Fan told me about how his presidency is being viewed in China now. Before Trump was elected, China was quite nervous about this showman, this TV star becoming the most powerful man in the U.S. and how that might affect the relationship, especially Trump's unpredictability. But there's one thing about Trump that the Chinese government really likes, or at least it says that it really likes, which is Trump's very aggressive rhetoric on China when he says, we will do everything we can to make sure that you don't steal our stuff, that you are raping our country, that you are a terrific threat to us. Because for a long time, China has thought, you know, the Obama administration, the Clinton administration, that they essentially never were saying what they truly believed, which is basically what Trump believes, that China is this rising threat that needs to be contained. One thing that China is grateful to Trump for is at least saying, of articulating this sense of, you know, China being the enemy. China thinks, well, at least, you know, (laughs) at least the swords are out. When I was uh, in China recently, I would say my takeaway from folks that I talked to there was China is not interested in filling the vacuum that the U.S. has left behind. China is not here to simply become the replacement for America as the policemen of the world. That's a very American way of thinking of this. And the U.S., of course, you say that to people in the U.S., they say that's absolutely not true. It's clear to look at the Belt and Road Initiative that is clearly about China trying to have an influence in all parts of the world, that they're absolutely positioning themselves to be the preeminent you know, power. What's your sense of that and how that plays out in the way in which the U.S. and China are ever going to be able to kind of make this frenemy thing work? (laughs) Yeah, frenemy is a good term. I think that China is still interested in gaining greater power. I think it's very interested in owning the best technology there is in the world, as can be seen with the Huawei affair, it feels that it has to learn the lessons of the opium wars of the first industrial revolution. If steam technology marked the first industrial revolution, I think 5G technology, which is at the center of the Huawei case, marks the fourth industrial revolution. So China is interested in being the strongest power But I'm not sure it quite wants to take on the responsibility, as you said, of being the world police, having to give so much of its energy to managing what's going on in corners of the earth that China doesn't necessarily have an interest in. Its Belt and Road Initiative is a way of developing relationships with other parts of the world and creating 
this relationship of interdependence, it doesn't really want to be solving problems. But what it says, the U.S. says, well, wait a minute, if China becomes this leader technologically, and it doesn't really have an interest in doing much more than just sort of expanding its own power and its own wealth, that can lead to sort of this morally ambiguous question of who's there making the rules for the world. Exactly. I mean, morality, you know, that word you used, I think is very important here because the U.S. believes that there are some universal values that we must all abide by no matter what country you're living in. And in that sense, being a moral referee really gave the entire world, I think, um, at least a way to measure itself against. So it can be a little bit dark to think about a world that's led by China's moral nihilism. Jiayang Fan writes for The New Yorker. She covers China, American politics, and... On Radiolab... First, we thought we'd made some sort of mistake. Two surprisingly simple scientific discoveries... This is crazy. I mean, we were just so surprised. That makes us reconsider our assumptions about progress. We need to learn the language of the doctors of that time. We need to be a little bit less dismissive. Staff retreat from Radiolab. I learned a bit of humility this way. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Culture. A little more about China's history now, and to another tumultuous period that changed the country. The Cultural Revolution was a dark time in China's history. From 1966 to 1976, communist leader Mao Zedong sought to revive Chinese communism by purging what he saw as the impure elements of society. Schools were shuttered, and more than 16 million young people were sent to remote regions of the country to farm. Weijing Shan was one of those children. Today, he's chairman and CEO of PAG a private equity firm based in Asia, and he's the author of the book, Out of the Gobi, My Story from China and America. I was 12 years old when I finished my elementary school when the Cultural Revolution broke out. The consequence of that was all the schools were shut down. At first, I thought it was a big vacation, but it turned out that schools were shut down for about 10 years, and the entire society was thrown into chaos. Many people were persecuted by mobs. The president of the country was thrown into jail secretly, without process, without anybody's knowledge. Three years later, he died there. Many teachers were beaten up. I saw with my own eyes a teacher beaten to death. And after three years, myself and many of my peers were sent to the Gobi Desert of China to do hard labor. And uh, I was 15 years old. We got there. There was nothing there. We were supposed to grow crops in the Gobi Desert. And you can imagine how successful we were doing that job. It was very, very hard labor. We worked 16, 18 hours a day. And uh, we did that for six years. For six years as a 15-year-old, you were in rudimentary living conditions, You had to make your own bunkers, 
and constantly hungry. Yes. How did this not completely break your spirit? And what can you tell us about some of the other kids that you were with and how their lives have turned out since then? I think human beings are very adaptable, and uh, you take what comes your way. It was very hard. Some people couldn't take it and fled, and the job was very hard. We had to toil in the desert and try to turn it into a farmland. We didn't have any shelters, so we had to build it ourselves, and uh, we had to make bricks. That was a back-breaking job. It was very, very painful. And in wintertime, in the Gobi Desert, it was routinely minus 10. It was extremely cold. And not only that, it's cold inside and out because there was no heating. So just imagine this kind of weather, spend 48 hours in the same temperature, in and out. It is very hard. But the worst thing was starvation. We never had enough to eat. So if I look emaciated today, it was because, you know, I never had enough to eat at that time. Psychologically, how did you make your way through that? We were just resigned to it. The whole thing was without much of a purpose. We went there thinking there was a purpose, thinking we're doing something great. We're transforming the remote countryside, the poor areas of China, only to know that we were wasting our lives. The hardest thing, of course, was there was no education. Schools were shut down for 10 years. And uh, reading itself was frowned upon. I got into trouble for reading. So you were supposed to do this mindless thing day after day without enough to eat, without enough to clothe yourself, and there seemed to be no future at all. Everything seemed to be so hopeless. And that's the hardest thing. If you ask me to do some hard labor for three years, I can take it. But if you send somebody to the Gobi Desert to give him the expectation that he will be there for the rest of his life, that's hard. What is the experience of the Cultural Revolution? How has that shaped some of the people who are in political leadership right now, Xi Jinping, for example, and the way that they see China and its citizens. The Cultural Revolution, of course, brought a lot of pain and harm to China. I think everybody recognizes it. Even the Communist Party passed resolution to call the Cultural Revolution a catastrophe for the country. China, I think, in the past 40 years, since the start of the open-door policy, there has been this conflict between two schools of thought. One is to move forward, completely abandon the old system of party control and central control of the economic activities, moving in the direction of the market which, by the way, is the reason why China has developed in the past 40 years. Other people are somehow uh, nostalgic about uh, the past, either out of habit, upbringing, or vested interest, and somehow cling to the old ideas. And it has been a constant 
struggle between these two schools of thought, which has defined the trajectory of China's development in the past uh, 40 years. So which side of that tension are we on right now? Who's winning the battle of moving forward or going back? I don't think that there is necessarily a winning side, but uh, if you look at the paths that China has taken in the past 40 years, I think the general consensus is that China needs to move away from the centrally planned system in the direction of the market. In fact, I was thinking of a piece, editorial piece, entitled The Triumph of the Market in China. And I think China has developed because it has embraced the market, not because of some notion of China model, which may be defined as clinging to central control of resources. I think if you were to talk to your average American and ask them about the Chinese economy, their assumption would be that it is still a state-run economy, that state-owned enterprise is the driving force of the economy, and that when all is said and done, if things are going in a direction that the government doesn't like, they are going to have a bigger influence on the market than obviously in this country, but in many other countries that we do business with. The state-owned sector, at least from my point of view, remains quite large in China. It gets preferential allocation of resources from the state. But if you look at the composition of the Chinese economy, you would find that the state-owned sector contributes to something like 30% of GDP. The private sector does much more, and that is really the story of China's economic development in the past 40 years. So today, the private sector contributes to more than 50% of the tax revenue for entire China, more than 60% of China's GDP, more than 70% of China's R&D spending and new product developments, more than 80% of urban employment and industrial output, and more than 90% of Chinese exports. And by the way, of that 90%, half of which are owned by foreign firms. So that's how significant the private sector is in China. So I think China is somewhat a strange animal. On one hand, there's a state-owned sector, which... I think uh, it's drag on the economy to some extent because it's inefficient. On the other hand, there's a very viable private sector which is developing fairly fast in spite of the fact that it doesn't receive as much resources as the state-owned sector. How fragile is the market economy in China? In other words, whether it's the trade war with this administration and this country right now, or to political upheaval in China. Again, it was only 50 years ago that the country was literally plunged into crisis of its own making with the Cultural Revolution. So where do you think the market stands? How how strong is it? And can it hold up at another time of incredible political upheaval? I think that uh, the private sector obviously is always very sensitive to shifts in political winds. 
and whenever there's some talk about,、uh, for example, rolling back of reforms, people feel jittery, nervous about it. Investment activity will drop. But my feeling is that、uh, the market in China has taken on a life of its own. It's very difficult to reverse it. You saw some sign of it in 1990, right after 1989 Tiananmen Square crackdown. People were very nervous about it. But times are different. If you were making ten dollars a year, you wouldn't care how the leadership experiments. With the political system, one way or the other, you couldn't be any poorer off. <laughs> Otherwise, you couldn't survive. But today, the per capita GDP in China is close to ten thousand dollars. And if you want people to go back to the old system, I don't think any leader will be able to do it. You will quickly lose legitimacy. And the only source of legitimacy for the leadership in China is economic growth. In order to produce economic growth, you need the private sector. As simple as that. What about a rise in nationalism in China among the citizenry? Are you seeing that? And what do you think that tells us about China at this moment? My own view is nationalism is kind of a mindless thing. It's like、uh, you root for your own sports team. And、uh, it doesn't really mean so much, but it is a phenomenon, and people tend to identify with their own country. Sometimes they get into the notion that、uh, they somehow would、uh, actually protect themselves by、uh, taking a nationalistic view. History proves that is always very harmful to a country, and China today has become so integrated economically with the rest of the world. China now is the largest trading nation in the world, so being nationalistic would harm China itself. And what China needs to have is a more open society, more open market, more open to trade and to investments. That's good for China. That's good for the rest of the world. Wei Jinshan is chairman and CEO of PAG, a private equity firm. And author of *Out of the Gobi: My Story from China and America*. We only just scratched the surface of China's long, complicated, and often confusing relationship with the West. If we want to understand the prospects for the short term, like will there be a trade deal or more tariffs, we need to understand how China views itself, with both hubris and deep-seated memory of past humiliations at the hand of the West. Plus, the trade war is masking the bigger, more challenging dilemma for the U.S. and the rest of the world in the long term. What I found most fascinating in my discussion with Jiayong Fan of the New Yorker, as well as my conversations with people in Beijing and Shanghai last December, is the degree to which China sees itself as a more passive rather than active superpower. China wants to be successful and prosperous and powerful, but doesn't seem to want to play the role of enforcer of the political world order. The question isn't what happens if China fills the vacuum left by the U.S.'s diminishing role in policing the world's political, social, moral world order. Instead, it's what happens if China doesn't fill it, and we are left with a vacuum. 
Remember, you can always find us on Facebook and leave a comment there. And of course, you can call us anytime at 877-8MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter and the show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Mm-hmm.